This is Relationship Truth Unfiltered, a podcast that ditches destructive traditions and delves into real biblical teaching about relationships. Welcome, I'm Julie Sedenko here with relationship expert Leslie Vernick. And today we're talking about what to do when you find out you're married to a sex addict. Leslie, sexual betrayal through porn and infidelity is so devastating. But when this is an addictive behavior, it's like this nonstop barrage of trauma and the consequences are deadly to the marriage and to the family. Can you talk about what are some signs of sexual addiction? When, how do you know it's actually an addiction? I think the biggest sign of an addiction of any kind, whether it's a drug addiction, sexual addiction, shopping addiction, gambling addiction, is when they're hiding and lying about it and they're not waking up to the consequences of it. So every sin has some natural consequences. And, you know, if you drink too much, you get sick or you lose your job or you get a DUI. If you're in a sexual addiction, um, you find yourself spending more and more time watching porn instead of being with your wife or wanting kinky things in the bedroom or lying to her when she's confronted you about it. If it's a spending addiction, you're, you know, gambling addiction, you're losing money, you can't pay your bills. There's consequences to sin. And when you're still doing that, when you see the negative consequences to your life, then I would say that qualifies as a huge red flag that you're caught in a trespass, that you've lost your ability to say no. An addiction is where you are compulsively doing the same stupid thing over and over again, and you're not stopping despite the negative results, despite the conflict in your marriage, despite not being able to pay your bills, despite getting in trouble at work, you're still doing it. And you're lying about it to yourself and you're lying about it to others and hiding it. Those are two red flags that if you see that in your marriage regarding any kind of addiction, but especially a sexual addiction, but if there's also gambling addictions or drug addictions or alcohol addictions, and you confront, you know, hey, I see, you know, $300 on the on the credit card for wine, you know, where, what, where did all this wine go? Oh, I used it for a business event, you know, and yet you find empty wine bottles in the garage. So they're lying, they're deceiving themselves and you about the nature of what's really going on. Is there a frequency that's necessary to call it an addiction? So maybe they, uh, you know, were watching porn and they lied about it once and, you know, a year later, same thing, but the frequency, they're not doing it all the time. Is there a frequency needed to call it an addiction? Not necessarily, because we we meet people, for example, with a sexual, not a sexual addiction, but a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction who are very functional. They're very functional addicts. They're CEOs of companies. They're, you know, they're movie stars. They're doing, you know, uh, amazing things with their lives, and yet they're still addicted. So I think what we're really looking at is the consequences, the lying, and the unwillingness or inability to say no. Now, sometimes they can say no for a moment or for a season if they know that they have something important to themselves to do, like give a speech or, you know, show up for work and be the CEO. They may not do drugs before that, but they might do drugs after that. So I think that the thing that we want to look at is not 
oh, are they compulsively doing this every day? But are they hiding it? Are they lying about it? And when the negative consequences come their way, are they minimizing it? And they're not learning from those consequences. Now, a sexual addiction, of course, I mean, most people, I mean, most people don't lie if they drink. If they say, yeah, I drank too much last night. Oh, I feel sick. I have a hangover. They don't lie about that. They just don't do it again, right? People mm -hmm. who right. lie about their addiction, a sexual addiction might be a little bit different because it is a shameful kind of thing to admit that you're masturbating to a picture instead of a, having a, a real relationship with a person. And so there might be some deceit, but when they see the impact that that not only addiction or that behavior, let's, let's not call it addiction at first, when they see, wow, that really hurt my spouse, that really damaged her trust in me, that really hurt our relationship. It's not just about the sex and the porn, it's about, wow, this impacted someone I say I love. When they mm -hmm. see that, and that doesn't change their actions. They keep doing that. That would be a sign of either addiction or they don't care about you. And maybe they don't even care about themselves because they're medicating. Addiction is a medication, really. It's a medication to avoid real feelings about something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you're men I've talked to who have been caught in sexual addiction are often very lonely, insecure lazy men who don't want to do the work of having a real relationship. And so they can get in front of a picture or a video and fantasize that they're wanted and they're handsome and they're in shape and everybody wants them and they're virile and, you know, they're great and they don't have to do any giving back. It's a completely selfish relationship. Um, and it's, it's, it's an addiction to the feelings of, or the it's a response to those feelings of inadequacy or, I'm not enough, or I'm not doing enough, or I don't know how to do, you know, it right. And so they can just stay lost in that addiction, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, spending, gambling, they're trying to soothe something inside that they're not willing to do the work to fix. Well, and that brings me to another question, because a lot of times a woman discovers this type of sexual addiction, and there's a lot of defensiveness. It, it, those conversations are tough, and they usually don't go very well. So how can a woman who's obviously the victim of a, a man's sex addiction, how can she deal with the blaming that he might give her, you know, when she says, well, you're the problem because, or, you know, it's not my fault. How does she deal with that? Because I would imagine it would make a woman pretty angry. <laughs> well, it should make her angry uh, for many reasons. One is because pornography itself is a disrespect abuse and objectification of women as bodies to use for my mm -hmm. pleasure. So when he blames you for that, basically he's saying, you should be willing to be the object I can use for my pleasure whenever I want. So if you're not doing it when I want, you're not doing it the way I want, um, it's your fault now that I have to go here because you're not willing to do those things. That's an object objectification of you as a person when you're not just a body to use. You're not a blow-up doll that he can just use for sex whenever he wants to. You're a person. You're an image bearer. And you're not mm -hmm. married to be an object. You're married to be in a relationship, a co-relationship co of mutuality and reciprocity and love and safety, not of I get to use you whenever I'm horny and you have no say in how and when I do that. That is absolutely and typical to God's design for marriage. So I think the first thing that a woman has to get really straight is who you are and you are not 
a blow-up doll for him to use whenever he wants. And that's not the definition of a wife or a good wife or a godly wife. So just get that out of your mind, even if it's in his. Um, second, marriage doesn't mean only being available for sex. Marriage is a, a partnership of, like I said, honesty, mutuality, reciprocity, safety, trust. And so when someone violates all that by going off with another woman, even if she's a fantasy woman on a video, that's a breach of your vows forsaking all others. That's a breach of your vows that I will not give my self, my soul, my body to another. And so even if it's a fantasy other, it's still a breach of your vows. It's not about you. It's about what he's doing. And so I think a woman can't control what he does, but she has to control how she allows other people's beliefs and thoughts to impact her. And if he's blaming her for his problem, it's like saying, you know, I eat too much because, or I drink too much because you don't do this or you don't do that. It's not true. It might be that I'm unhappy that you don't do this or you don't do that for me. But the way I cope with my unhappiness yes. is my issue. Now, I'm going to ask you a question because I know people are thinking it. Uh, there are people that actually believe that a wife is supposed to be that blow up doll if a husband needs it. You know, well, the, your body's not your own. That's what the Bible says. So if he wants it and he needs it, then it's your job to be there for him whenever. Talk about that. Respond to that, please. Yeah, I think that's been a real miss message that has been given to men and women about women and about marriage first and about men like men have this insatiable sex drive that will cause them to have death if they don't have it like if a man doesn't have a, a an orgasm twice a week he's going to die well i wonder how jesus survived 33 years being a single man mm. if it's true that all men need sex all the time or they will die what did jesus do I think Jesus showed men that sex is not the penultimate of life or a life well lived. And so I think we need to understand that sex is a beautiful, wonderful gift. And yes, it does feel good to have that release, but you won't die if you don't have it. I remember a man telling me once that uh, he was a sexual addict and he decided, uh, he and his wife decided to um, be abstinent for a period of 90 days so that he would learn that he wasn't going to die if he didn't have mm -hmm. sex. And um, it was a really powerful lesson for him to learn that he could have a strong sex drive and a strong sexual need and, and nothing bad happened to him that he didn't fulfill that. And I'm gonna get a little graphic here, but he actually said, you know, toward the end of those 90 days, there was a night that I had a wet dream and God just gave me the release. Wow. God just gave me the release in my body. I didn't have to masturbate. I didn't have to watch porn. I didn't have to do anything. God just did it to my body and my body had that release. I didn't feel guilty about it. I didn't feel ashamed. It just happened. So I think there's this myth that men and women have grown up with that men are these biological sex machines that must be fed regularly or they will explode and go crazy. And that's not true. And that women, if they're married, have an obligation to 
be sexually available whenever he has this need, even if it's five times a day. And I think that's not true either. Now, the Bible does say in 1 Corinthians 7 that your body is not your own. But we have to look at that in the context of what Paul was saying and in the culture in which he was saying it. That's how we interpret the Bible. We don't just take Bible verses out and make a rule about them. And so if we look at the whole culture and the passage, it's a very patriarchal culture. Men had all the rights. Women had no rights. Of course, women knew that their conjugal duties were to have sex. I was just reading recently about the rape laws in India. And India is still a very patriarchal culture. And they're yeah. trying, women today are trying to change the rape law so that marital rape is considered rape. And I, I was looking at the comments of men in, the, in this article that I was reading about this, and they didn't want the rape law changed. And one of the people were saying, why would a man get married if he can't have sex whenever he wants? That's what marriage is all about. And I think that's the idea of a patriarchal culture is I get to have someone I can have sex with anytime, anywhere, anyhow, anytime, day or night, because she's my wife, which is that objectification of a woman as a blow up doll to satisfy my needs when I need it. And that is not how God created marriage to be at all. God did not create marriage just for man. He didn't create marriage just for sex. He created marriage for a model of Christ and the church, a relationship of safety and trust. And so sexual intimacy is a, a beautiful thing in a relationship of safety and trust. And that's why he tells us not to have casual sex or not to have sex with random people because it is to be a sacred, spiritual, safe, trusting relationship, not just an orgasmic experience. And so going back to this 1 Corinthians 7 passage where Paul's talking to the culture and he's saying the most important word in this whole passage is the word likewise. So if you think about a patriarchal culture where men are here and women are here, women don't have rights, men have all the rights. What Paul is saying when he says, hey, when you're married, he's writing to a culture of new Christians who thought maybe it would be best not to have sex at all because the culture was saying that sex was bad and dirty for Christians. And Paul's saying, no, marital sex is a beautiful thing. And if you're married, don't deprive one another if you're Christians. If you're new Christians, that's fine. Have sex, enjoy sex. He's saying, don't deprive one another of that out of spiritual reasons. And he's saying, so wife, your body is it not your own. It's your husband's to enjoy. And likewise, likewise. Husbands, your body is not your own. And so what he's doing in that passage is he's really adjusting the cultural imbalance of men. You have all the power and women, you have no power to, wow, the same things that apply for a man apply for a woman. The same rights, the same responsibilities that we're to care for one another's needs, we're to care for one another's bodies, and we don't misuse or abuse one another's bodies especially in the sexual relationship. Isn't it sad that this patriarchal culture dynamic seems to really have a play in the church, that it's almost the, the teaching of the church, and that's how so many of our Christian women live? I think it's a, a huge disservice. Uh, Sheila Gregoire has done a great job at doing a lot of research among Christian women and their experience of this in the sexual relationship and marriage. Um, she Deserves Better is a great book that she's written about this. Um, and I think it's really important that we understand that if we look at a typical marriage book from past evangelical culture, it really is all about 
oh, if you're a wife, you better make sure you meet all of his needs or he's going to go elsewhere, which really feeds this entitlement that if you yeah. don't do it as I want, when I want, then you're, it's your fault that I'm watching pornography. It's your fault that I got caught in a sexual addiction, which is totally, again, against God's word, because each of us are responsible for our own choices. And even if I am disappointed in the sexual frequency or opportunities in my marriage, which I'm sure many women who are listening to this podcast are likewise disappointed in their husband's sexual frequency, or maybe they've never even experienced sexual orgasm because he's selfish in their sexual relationship. And they haven't cheated. And they haven't gone and started watching porn mm -hmm. because they wanted to honor God and honor their marriage. And so I think this is really important that, yes, we might be legitimately disappointed sometimes with our partner in some areas. And does that give us excuse to go sin? No. Each of us are responsible for how we handle our own disappointments in life. One of your followers uh, described the discovery of a sex addiction to feeling like a bomb had gone off in her life and family. When you have that kind of devastating feeling, what can a, what are some practical ways that a woman could walk through that while keeping her sanity, protecting her children, and trying to figure out what to do? It is like a bomb. It is like a bomb. And so I think this is what's really important. Again, when a bomb goes off in your literal house, you're probably not going to be thinking about trying to pay your bills. You're probably mm -hmm. not going to be thinking about trying to um, make sure what's in the refrigerator doesn't go stale. You know, you're just thinking about safety right now. All you're thinking about is, you know, I got to get out of this house. I got to get my kids out of this house. I got to get us safe. That's all you're thinking about. And that's all you should be thinking about. Our body is hardwired to have safety as our number one priority. So when you're in danger, the Bible says, when the prudent see danger, they take refuge. They don't worry about their bills. They don't worry about their marriage. Right now, mm -hmm. you have to worry about your safety. And I think so often when the bomb goes off, women start feeling like, oh my gosh, you know, what can I do to save my marriage? What can I do to fix my husband? And, and they've neglected their own safety to their peril, their own emotional safety, maybe their financial safety because he's spending all kinds of money on prostitutes or 800 numbers or porn sites or whatever he's doing, strip clubs. And they're just ignoring all of that, thinking that it's their job to try to rescue him and save their marriage. And right now, if you're in a bomb situation, your job is to rescue yourself and your kids. Your husband's an adult. If he's in trouble, he needs to rescue himself. And usually those people who are causing the bomb to go off don't see themselves in a problem at all. And if they're really going to turn around and change, they have to understand that they've created a bomb that's gone off in their family and care about that. But that's a secondary question. The first question is what do you need to do to get safe physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, sexually, mm -hmm. and financially? And what do you do you need to keep, keep your children safe? So depending on the context of what you found, if you found homosexual sin on pornography, if you found a sexual addiction with children, if you, I mean, whatever you found yeah. is going to give you information about what kind of safety you need to create for yourselves. It might mean separation. It might mean calling the police. It might mean leaving the home. It might mean uh, 
putting your assets in a different account so that he doesn't blow through all of them on strip clubs and, you know, uh, 1-800, some number that he's giving money to someone over there. So I don't know what the details are. Just like if a bomb went off and it was a chemical bomb, you would have to put on a hazmat suit or a gas mask. If a, it was a physical bomb or a different kind of bomb, you would have to leave the pre premises for a different reason. So I think those are the information when you disclose, when you find out, usually it's not through disclosure, it's through discovery, all right? right. You find out something and it's like your world is shattered and now you have to find out what the impact is to you so that you can create some safety for yourself. That's the first step. Well, and, and do that without guilt, without guilt. Your ma marriage has blown up. Your life has blown up in a literal sense. Give yourself some time to recover. Do you wonder whether your marriage is just difficult or if it's actually destructive? Leslie has a quick start guide that will help you answer that question. Not only that, if you find your marriage is in the destructive category, this guide will give you concrete biblical answers on your next steps. Go to lesliewernick.com forward slash start to get your free quick start guide. And please know this, you are seen, you are heard, and friend, you are valued. How can she deal with her anger? What do you do? With I think she has every reason to be angry. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what. Yeah. Uh, yes. But, you, you know, should be but, angry. But, but not letting that anger come out in, in dangerous ways towards her children, mm -hmm. towards other mm -hmm. people. How, what are some ways that someone could, you could help them deal with that? Yeah. So I think that she should feel furious, angry. But the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. So please don't feel like you have to tap down your anger or that you have to spiritualize it or you have to quickly get rid of it in order to be a good person. You do not. Right. You have every reason to be angry at what's been happening to your house that you didn't know about, what's been happening behind the scenes in your marriage. So let yourself feel your anger. It is informing you. Something's terribly wrong. And you are being violated and you are, and that's okay for you to feel angry. You should, it gives you the energy to do something. What you want to do though, is not retaliate. What you don't want to do is, well, he cheated on me. I'm going to cheat on him. Or he hurt me. I'm going to hurt him. Or he did this. To, I'm going to, he did evil to me. I'm going to do evil back to him. That's the last thing that you want to do because it only creates more problems for you to have to clean up later. So in your anger, what would that look like? So I think having a place that you can vent, now that might be a good friend, it might be a counselor, it might be a group of women you belong to as in a support group, which I would highly encourage you to join. It might be sometimes when I'm really angry, when I was betrayed by a friend and I was so, so angry by it, I just spent hours writing her letters about how awful I thought she right. was. I didn't send them to her, but right. I just wrote them because I just needed to get clarified, you know, clarity about what I felt out on paper. And I needed to use words to get some of that energy out. Sometimes I've taken really brisk walks. Sometimes I've lifted weights just really fast to get some of that physical anger energy out. Um, sometimes I have cried and screamed and yelled all by myself just to get some of that emotional angst out of my body, because I don't want to feel that tension all the time, but I feel it. And so I think if we can honor that our emotions have been 
blown up as well. And they are informing us, just like if you were vomiting, 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 you wouldn't say, oh, I should stop vomiting. This isn't pretty. It's not pretty, but it's telling you something's wrong. Yes. It's telling you something's wrong. Pay attention and take care of yourself because you don't want to be vomiting all over your furniture and you don't want to be vomiting all over your bed. You don't want to be vomiting all over everybody else, but you are vomiting and give yourself some compassion. I know I downloaded during a very difficult time, a password protected journal app on my phone. And during hard times, I would go in my room and I would write some pretty ugly stuff. I don't like to look back at it because, you know, but it, it, it gave me a place to put those feelings and those thoughts without damaging other people. And right. It's like taking an ax to your house. You don't want to take an ax to your house and start ripping down the walls that you're so angry. Otherwise, you, you know, that's another problem now. But you might need to take heavy weights and just start lifting them. Or you might need to, you know, go rake leaves or go scrub floors or do something that gets some of that physical energy out in a constructive way. <laughs> the other day I was, I was upset. It wasn't really that big a deal, but I, I was mad at my husband about something. And I just, I went decided to just take a shower and I'm not kidding. My hair was so clean because I was just scrubbing it like crazy. But I, I like what you said, Leslie, is that anger is an energy and it isn't something that can just be stuffed indefinitely because there does need to be some kind of release, but you can have a positive release of that. So. Yeah. Because what happens when you don't. So if we think about energy levels, right? Anger is a, is a very, strong energy. It's a negative energy, but it's a very strong negative energy. But when we feel shamed about our negative energy of anger, what happens is we pull the plug and then we move mm -hmm. into depression. And I worked with a woman. One of the reasons I work in this field with destructive marriages is I wrote a book on depression and I was working with a woman who was depressed because she found out about her husband's sexual addiction and she didn't know what to do with her anger. She was just so furious but she felt guilty and shame about her fury. And so she just pulled the plug and she just went flatlined and mm. she didn't feel anything and she didn't want to live. And she just, and so the energy of anger is far more productive than moving lower to the energy of shame and depression and hopelessness, right? You don't want to go there because mm. then you can't do anything positive. And so your anger is this crossroads from moving into more negative or moving into more positive. And you get to decide what you're going to do with your anger, but do not shame yourself for having it. You should have it. Amen. Leslie, is it possible for somebody to truly overcome sexual addiction? And if so, how, and how do you know when they have? Well, the Bible tells us that it is possible, but it does talk about this in a number of different ways. Um, I think that, you know, the Bible talks about that we're in Titus 2, 11, we're to learn to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Um, and so how do we learn to do that? We don't do that all by ourselves. Most people who don't solve or beat an addiction in isolation, they do it in a community of other people who know what their life is like, who know what their lies are like, who know what their temptations are like, who can help them, who, who maybe are two steps ahead of them that can help them on the journey. But we are 
to learn to say no to ourselves. The Bible also talks about in Galatians that our spirit wars with our flesh and those who live by the flesh do things that the flesh craves. And those who live by the spirit do what the spirit says. So when you are addicted to something and you are coming to a place of honesty and you admit it, like I am addicted to whatever, then understand that that you have to be really careful. You have to have really good boundaries around your access and your consumption of those things, whether it's porn, whether it's how you spend money on credit cards, whether it's, you know, alcohol, whether it's drugs, you know, all of those kind of things. And I think that's your responsibility. If you don't want to be an addict or act out as an addict, one person that I worked with that was an alcoholic, um, he had been sober for 25 years and he was still going to AA three times a week. And I asked him, like, why do you still go to AA? You've been doing good. You've been sober for 25 years. Why do you still need AA? And he said this very powerful, because I am an addict and I don't want to ever forget that I'm an addict. Hmm. And going to AA three times a week helps me remember so that I don't ever think that I can drink again and be okay. Wow. So, so he was vigilant over himself. His wife didn't make him go to AA. You know, his church didn't make him go to AA. He's saying, this is my Achilles heel. And if I don't stay vigilant over this Achilles heel, it will ruin my life. He said, if I ever take another drink again, I will be dead. Wow. So that's how serious he took his addiction and his recovery for 25 years going to AA three times a week so that he doesn't forget that he's this close from making a bad decision. So if you've got a man who admits to the sexual sin and he says, I'll never do it again and everything, are you saying don't believe him unless he's going to some type of support group? And what should she look for to know that what he means is true? So I think the Bible clearly says that our actions matter. When the Pharisees were claiming to be repentant, when they went to John the Baptist, and he said to the Pharisees, you know, prove by the way that you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to one another, we're safe. We're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. And so then the crowds asked him, well, then what do we do? This is what you should do, John said. If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, teacher, what should we do? Collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? Said the soldiers, don't extort money, make false accusations, be content with your pay. So he gave different people different instructions on what to do hmm. to show that they were different. So if you're a sex addict, what should I do becomes, wow, what are, what are my temptations? So maybe I have to forsake the internet for a while. Maybe I need to join a support group. Maybe I need to go to counseling. Maybe I need to have accountability partners. Maybe I need to have, you know, covenant eyes on the computer. Maybe I need, you know, but this isn't for the wife to decide what he should do. Exactly. This is for him to say, just like my client who said, I don't want to be dead from my addiction. And so I must continue my treatment in AA. He was seeing me for counseling. 
right? He was doing his work. Nobody right. cracked a whip saying he needed to do this. He decided he needed to do this in order to be on the path he wanted to be on to say that he was. So if we're repentant, if we're truly repentant and we're saying, hey, I'm turning from that sin and I'm walking in newness of life, all of us need help and direction on doing that. And if we're not seeking that help and we're not partnering with people who are showing us how to do that, whether it's through AA, whether it's through a sexual addiction group, whether it's in personal counseling, whether it's in group accountability, all of the above, I wouldn't believe someone. If someone said, hey, I'm an addict, but I'm not, I'm not gonna ever do that again, but I don't need any help. I would think they're lying to themselves and they're lying yeah. to me because that's not how God made us to, to change and to work. And if he has this attitude of uh, defensiveness and you're doing all the Googling, you're doing all the trying, you're trying to drag him to counseling and you're, you're constantly initiating his recovery or trying to, that's a huge sign, right? That it's probably not going to last. Well, you want to, yeah, no, not, you want to motivate it. Right. right. He's not motivated and he's not ready. And I know that that's a really scary place for a woman to see, because what does that mean for her? What does that mean for her marriage? Because then she has some decisions to make. Does right. she want to stay married to a sex addict? And what does that look like for her? And what does that mean for her? Right. That's really the question she has to ask herself in this moment, not how do I get him to stop being a sex addict? Because you can't, you don't have the power to get him to repent. That's his choice. And one of the things that's so important when we think about addictions, but also just when we think about humanity and growth is God has given us a powerful, powerful opportunity or ability. And that is we get to choose. Choose this day who you will serve. In Deuteronomy, he says, choose life. But some people didn't. They chose death. And some well, people and choose God and some people choose pleasure. Now, I'm going to say something that I, I believe some people listening might be thinking of. And Leslie, I don't have any choices. I can't afford to move out. I can't afford to leave him. I've got these kids and I, I've been a stay-at-home mom and I don't have a choice. Respond to that woman. You absolutely have a choice. All right. You have a couple of choices. You have a choice about how you will live with this. Will you live with this in control mode, I've got to fix him, I've got to change him, and all your energies go into nagging, complaining, whining, structuring, uh, checking, you know, trying to control him. You have a choice of that. Or here's another choice you have. Accept that he's got a problem and live with it, have boundaries. So I know he has a sexual addiction. How does that impact me? Probably I'm not going to be willing to have sex with him because I don't want to catch anything. Right. right. But I'm going to choose to live with him. I'm going to choose to care about him in a way that is brotherly kindness and honest affection with boundaries that, you know, financial boundaries, sexual boundaries, so that he can't continue to harm me and the kids, whatever that might look like. That's another choice. And while you make that choice, you might say, hmm, maybe this is going to get worse. And I won't be able to live like this. And so maybe I better start homeschooling myself in some job skill, whether it's taking internet classes on computer programming or becoming a virtual assistant or 
doing audible reading or all kinds of stuff. There's lots of, lots of jobs out there these days that you can find if you want one. And people are looking for reliable employees these days, both virtually as well as in person. And maybe I will have to do that if this doesn't get better or I'm not able to sustain this for the very long this way. But I am not letting this ruin me. It might ruin him. It might ruin our family the way it is right now. But I am not going to let him and his addiction ruin me. Yes. And therefore, I am going to have to be prepared for the worst. I think of uh, Alicia. She was a lady that I... Uh, interviewed, gosh, early after we started the podcast and she had been paralyzed. Uh, I think she was pregnant with her sixth child. Yeah. And and she ended up paralyzed and her husband had a sexual addiction. He was a pastor. She used to wake up to him raping her. um, And she did eventually have to leave. And she has, she's actually um, starting her own ministry. And, but she said, I've never missed a bill ever. And she said, we're not rolling in money, but we're not starving. And that God will take care of his children. Yeah. And I think that all of, this is a powerful question and you may not want to hear this at this juncture and it may be too soon to hear this, but I'm telling it because at some point you're going to have to ask yourself. So after the, the bomb goes off and now you're left with the rubble, You're going to be stuck with, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And here are two questions that will make a difference in the next six months. You can ask yourself the question, why did this happen to me? God, why did this happen to me? Why me? Why is this happening to me? And we, I have asked that question a <laughs> yeah. lot. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I have, and I've never really gotten a good answer. Nope but it's kept me spinning in a downward spiral for a long time. So I'm going to give you a new question to ask yourself. And it feels almost cruel to ask, but I'm going to put some pillows around it. So stay with me. The question I'm asking myself now is, why is this happening for me? Maybe I need Mm -hmm. to learn to have better boundaries. Maybe I need to learn to stop being so passive. Maybe I need to learn to finish growing up so that I can support myself, even if he wigs out. Maybe I need to learn to say no. Maybe I need to learn to care for myself, even if he doesn't care for me. Well, now there's all kinds of things you can work on, Hmm. even if he never changes. And if you choose to ask yourself that second question, that will lead you to an upward spiral where you start to make forward momentum. And he might too, if he asks himself that question, but you can't control what he does inside of his own heart and life. Jesus knew Judas was getting corrupt on the inside. He knew what he was about to do. He said, Judas, I know what you're about to do. You might know what your husband's about to do when he goes into the living room after you go to sleep. You know he's going to watch a movie and masturbate. You know he's going to do something awful. And you can't stop him. You can nag him. What, are you going to sit on his back all the time and control him? You can't. He's just going to get sneakier and more deceitful. Is that what you want? 
No. And so I think it's really important for you to decide what are you going to learn from this? And one of them is I can't control him. But God says all things work together for my good. And so if that's really true, this can be used as awful as it is and have your awful mm -hmm. period, have your awful anger, have your awful grieving. You have a bomb that went off. Give yourself space to acknowledge that. But when you're cleaning up the rubble, where are you going to go from there? And that's the question that will help you get unstuck, even if your marriage doesn't make it. Leslie, you said have said something so simple yet profound, and I use it a lot with my kids when they're going through something, and that is just that you can do hard things. And for the woman who's like, I just can't do this, you can. We, each one of us can do hard things. And I hope that if you're listening to this and going through this, that you know that we want to be here for you. We want to help you walk through that. And uh, Leslie, would you pray for them? Yeah, Lord, we can do hard things because you tell us we can. You tell us to be strong and courageous. And if we're not strong, maybe that's why this is for us, for us to learn to be strong, for us to learn to handle life's awful black moments because there are going to be more of them, to teach our children to handle them, mm -hmm. to know that you are in everything, even if we don't like it. And it's okay not to like it. Job didn't like it. Jeremiah didn't like it. We don't have to like it. Jesus didn't even like it. He said, I don't really want to go to the cross. It's okay to be really, really honest with you and Thank you. to trust that you will use this in our lives to build more of the character that we're to embody to be the best version of ourselves. Lord, when this happens, we get so scared that our marriage is going to end, and it might because we can't change him. So Lord, help us to shift our focus from fixing him to encouraging him and loving him and helping ourselves to get strong enough to live without him if he chooses not to change. That is a message women do not hear as they need to. But we live in a world that is so willy-nilly of commitments that there might not even be a sexual addiction. There might just be I don't want to be with you anymore. And if a woman hasn't prepared herself to take care of herself, she's in a panic, not just because of her marriage, but because of her very life and her survival. Lord, help women to trust you in this, as awful as it is, and to partner and join up with other women who have gone through this so that they can, too, learn that they can do hard things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. If you need clarity on whether your marriage is difficult, disappointing, or destructive, go to lesliebernick.com forward slash start for Leslie's free quick start guide. It's totally private and will help you get clear on your next step. Again, that's lesliebernick.com 
forward slash start. Until next time, may God bless all of your relationships with him, with yourself, and with others.